0: Hey, what up? This is Sheggs from sheggsandstuff.com. And this is part six of a blog series through the Old Testament book of Esther. And today's blog post is titled, What to Remember When God Seems to Have Forgotten You. Hey, so today we are in chapter six of the book of Esther. And uh, just to set it up, there's a phrase in the Bible that, that in times past, have always left me uh, has always left me a little unsettled, and it's those places where the Bible says, "And God remembered." Now, now those instances of its occurrence in scriptures uh, made me uncomfortable because, from a human perspective, um, God remembering something I- I implies that God forgets, which, of course, then makes me nervous about a bunch of other things that I've asked God for. In the past, in fact, let me give you uh, three samplings of Bible verses where God seemingly forgot things. So, in Genesis chapter eight, verse one, it says, "God remembered Noah," right? As if to say, "Dude, uh, you know, sorry about leaving you stranded on the ark. You know, I forgot you were still alive after that whole worldwide flood thing," right? Uh, Genesis thirty chapter verse twenty-two says, "God remembered." Rachel, who was asking for a child, as if to say, "Oops, my bad. Totally forgot you wanted a child, right?" And then in Exodus chapter two, verse twenty-three to twenty-five, it says God remembered uh, the children of Israel after four hundred years of slavery in Egypt, as if to suggest that God's a forgetful grandfather who took a four hundred-year nap. Now there are actually a few more verses like that in the in other places in the Scripture where it says God remembered, but but for now, I think those are enough. To leave us scratching our heads. You see, the phrase God remembered is puzzling and bothersome, at least for me, early in my faith. uh, Because everything else I had read in the Bible tells me that God is perfect in knowledge and in wisdom, thereby making it impossible for him to forget. For example, the psalmist says in Psalm 139 verse 4, he says, God knows every thought that passes through my mind before I can even formulate it, right? Like he, he doesn't lack for knowledge. Uh, the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 46, verse 9 and 10 says that God was around long before the ancient times even began. In other words, God's just got mad data on on pretty much everything, right? Uh, The author of Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13 says, there is no secret event that escapes his eyes. And then Matthew, the gospel writer in Matthew 10, 29, he he says that not even the birds in the Amazon forest who no one can see uh, falls ill apart from God's will. So certainly God doesn't have a problem forgetting things. So, so what, is, what in the world is happening, right? Like, like, does God suffer from short-term or long-term memory loss? Or is the scripture simply trying to convey in human terms something that's just too super complex for our puny little minds to comprehend, Well, I'm obviously leaning towards the latter assumption. Um, in fact, in light of the biblical evidence that God is eternally brilliant, man, we're compelled to understand the phrase God remembered as an anthropomorphism. I'm sorry, anthropomorphism. uh, The process which is, by the way, is a big word for, for the process of assigning human characteristics to God so that he feels more relatable. So so the author's intent in those instances in the scriptures where the phrase is used is not simply just to offer the reader comfort that God is aware of all things and is therefore aware of their need, but rather the phrase God remembered is really um, that that, that God's intent to do what he... It's to communicate that God's intent to do what he has always wanted to do is now being put into action. It's literally God saying, it's time when the circumstances are perfectly aligned. So that's really the big idea behind God remembered. And I take the time to explain that aspect of how God relates to humans in moments when we feel like he's forgotten us. Because in the sixth insol- installment of this block series through the Old Testament book of Esther, it's going to appear to us that God is finally remembering the dire prayer needs of the Jews in Persia, and a particular good deed by his man in office, Mordecai. And the deed I'm speaking of is actually an easily overlooked event that occurred much earlier in Esther chapter 2. In that account, Mordecai uncovered an assassination plot to take the king's life. He reported it to Esther, who in turn conveyed it to the king, giving full credit to Mordecai. The matter was investigated, it was found to be true, and the culprits were tried and executed, Unfortunately, Mordecai was never rewarded or, or or celebrated. I mean, he was simply given, you know, they gave him a high five and and they wrote down his good deed in the king's journal. Now, Mordecai actually never once complained about being disregarded, but but simply got up the next day and went about his normal business. And as you'll discover shortly, as we go along in this blog post, um, though the king may have overlooked Mordecai's good deed, God never forgot, but in fact was moving kingdom pieces around like a chess player waiting for the right time to reward his servants. And so in this week's blog post, you're going to discover that God's delayed rewards in your life are not a matter of him just suddenly remembering to show up, but are very much about him choosing to bless us in the moment when it'll do us the greatest good and bring him the greatest glory. Okay, so let's do a quick recap uh, to bring us up to speed on where we are in chapter 6. So thus far in the story, um, a Persian royal official named Haman hates Mordecai and pretty much Jews in general. He's even gone as far as to secure palace permission to commit genocide by executing, uh, annihilating all the Jews in Persia. Now, Queen Queen Esther, uh, Mordecai, and pretty much every Jew in Persia have prayed and fasted for three days to seek God's deliverance. Esther has actually even approached the king to seek a pardon and has actually been favorably received by King Xerxes, but she's being very tactical in how she goes about making her actual request. Haman, on the other hand, is increasingly getting infuriated with Mordecai and is counseled by his wife and his friends to build a sharpened pole that stands 75 feet tall and pretty much impale Mordecai on it. I know it's violence. Anyway, Haman excitedly, and so at at the end of chapter five, Haman excitedly orders the builders to begin building this huge pole that he's gonna uh, kill Mordecai on and then hurries off at night to the palace to get official permission from the king to immediately have Mordecai executed. And so um, that actually brings us to what I would describe as the first lesson in what to remember when God seems to have forgotten you or when God seemingly seems to have forgotten you. And it's this, number one, when God remembers you, he looks out for things you wouldn't even think to look out for. Um, while verse one tells us that while Haman was waiting in the inner courts of the palace to be summoned in by the king, God was busy actually taking sleep away from the king. In fact, in the original language, verse one literally translates as the king's sleep fled. <laughs> right. So, so so make no mistake about it. This is a picture of God In motion, a picture of how God works behind the scenes when he starts remembering you, which I've established already. It's not that he suddenly remembers, but it's that he's finally ready to move. Anyway, uh, King Xerxes cannot sleep, and so to help him sleep, he orders his servants to read to him from the book of Chronicles where all his kingdom quests were recorded. And by sovereign design, in the process of reading, the servant who's reading just happens to come across the story about Mordecai's foiling of the assassination attempt on the king. And so the king inquires about Mordecai's reward for that good deed, and the servants basically tell him, well, nothing nothing has been done for him. So it's clearly time for Xerxes to bless somebody's socks off. It's time for him to reward someone. And so I think it's worth pausing here for a moment and pointing out, and you might not be aware of this, but to point out that five years have passed since the moment when Mordecai rescued the king in chapter two to chapter six. So that's five years of Mordecai waiting and feeling like heaven never even saw him lift a finger, which many of you may feel the same way about some of your prayers, And so this, of course, opens up an opportunity to point out a second lesson about God remembering. And it's this. When God remembers you, his timing is impeccable. You see, God could have orchestrated events so that Mordecai was immediately rewarded way back then. But God providentially distracted Xerxes so that Mordecai's deed wouldn't really catch his attention till five years later on a restless night when the reward would be most meaningful, as you'll discover later on in the story. You see, Mordecai may have actually gained greatly back then if he were rewarded five years ago, but in light of what Haman is threatening, something which, by the way, God knew five years ago would happen, um, in light of what Haman is threatening, God knew that the reward would be most meaningful to Mordecai in this present season. And man, that is so timely for many of you to hear this. Like like you're thinking, God, I've done this. I've been faithful. Why not? And God's like, I'm saving it for when it will be most meaningful to you. Now, once again, it's not that God forgets to fulfill his promise in our lives. Rather, it's that God is moving according to his schedule. And in so doing, he's determining the best moment when his blessings will have the greatest exponential impact in our lives. You know, when I look back on my own life and I think about how and when God answered certain prayers, man, I am so deeply grateful that God chooses to work according to his calendar and his clock and not the timing of my request. Like, for example, I, like, like, okay, so I have, I have no ill will towards the girls that I dated prior to meeting my wife. But man, I got to tell you, I am so thankful that those relationships ended when they did because, because when God finally opened the door for me to meet my wife, man, I was in a clearer, clearer state of mind. And even I was more secure in my identity than I'd ever been in any other season of my life. In other words, God remembered my prayers for a godly wife when I was most ready to receive it and when he ultimately was all set to lead her into my life. And for that, I praise him. God's perfect timing is at the heart of him remembering. All right, let's go back to the palace. So um, uh, Xerxes, realizing that Mordecai needed to be celebrated and rewarded for his good deed, the king basically seeks out counsel and asks his servants to bring in any of his top advisors who were present in the palace remember he can't sleep so he's trying to get things done and lo and behold who is in the king's court waiting to speak to the king about impaling mordecai on a pole haman right i mean think about the sweet irony here like haman is in the hallway waiting to request to kill the mordecai and and the king is looking to reward mordecai well i, I find it interesting that once haman enters the presence of the king Uh, The king doesn't actually directly bring up Mordecai's name, but actually the king simply just poses a hypothetical question of what should be done for the man that the king especially wants to honor. Now, I don't suppose that the king knew that Haman was secretly plotting to kill Mordecai, but I suspect that the king was aware of Haman's ego and possibly his ambition. But like based on how Haman bragged about his wealth and his influence at the party in his house in the previous chapter, I think we can surmise that the king may have been a little wary of offering Haman any more power or influence than what he already had. And I think it's, in fact, I think it's for this reason that I believe the king keeps his request generic enough so that Haman doesn't catch on. And as if to prove my point, when the king asks what should be done for the man the king wants to honor Haman, who's thinking the king is referring to him, I mean, that is the ultimate level of pride, right? Because Haman is going, who, who in the world would Xerxes want to honor more than me? Well, verse 7 to 9, um, here's what he says. Here's what the king says. I'm sorry, here's what uh, Haman suggests for the king. Verse 7, for the man that the king delights to honor, do this, king, Bring a royal robe that the king has worn and a horse that the king has ridden, um, one with a royal crown on its head. Then give the robe and the horse to one of the king's most noble princes. In fact, have him robe that's have the prince robe the man whom the king especially wants to honor. Have the prince lead him on horseback through the city square, proclaiming before him, this is what is to be done for the man whom the king especially wants to honor to honor men i mean you know haman is (laughs) haman is giving the king this advice with the belief that he's the one who's going to receive it so uh, this is a good time as any to point out another lesson about god remembering and it's this when god remembers you he takes into consideration humility but also pride let me explain The truth is this, that God remembers the humble just as much as he remembers the prideful. It's just that God remembers both parties in different ways. And so to the humble person, God remembers them in the sense that he will suddenly show up one day to elevate you to a position of honor that you haven't gone to seek for yourself. Sort of like he did with Mordecai. Uh, Or he's about to do it sort of like he's about to do with Mordecai. But to the proud, God remembers them in the sense that he will suddenly show up to kick the legs out from under their stool so that their kingdom comes crashing down, as we'll see in a few moments and in the next chapter with, with Haman. And it's for these reasons that James chapter 4 verse 6 says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. In fact, other verses pretty much say the same thing. Psalm 138, verse 6, Proverbs three thirty-four, and 1 Peter 5, 5 pretty much say the same thing. The point the point I'm trying to make here is this, that, that while you wait and while you trust for God to remember you, man, st- stay humble. Stay humble. Now, the question, of course, because we hear that a lot, be humble, be humble. The question, of course, then becomes, well, what does true biblical humility look like? Well, the answer to that question is actually pretty easy. It's in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3 to 4, where it not only shows us what humility looks like, but actually tells us what gets in the way of humility. So in those verses, Paul tells Christians to do nothing out of selfish ambition. So selfish ambition is is me wanting to do better than everyone else just for the sake of being better than everyone else. All right, That's that's selfish ambition. So Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. He says, do nothing out of vain conceit. So vain conceit is getting angry and upset when other people win, or in some cases, rejoicing when they fail. So Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition. Do nothing out of vain conceit. Instead, in humility, here we go, Value others above yourself. And then he goes on to say, not just looking out for your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. So so in light of having grown up in the church and, and in light of even in my own life feigning humility, here is what humility is not. Humility has nothing to do with having a low view of one's self. Right? Like... Um, I forget who made this quote. I heard it a while ago. It just really stuck with me. But but humility is not thinking less of yourself. It is thinking less about yourself and more about the needs and the interest of others. And that's what Paul is getting at in these verses. Humility, all right, so here it is. Humility at its finest is others' focus. Like it's putting the interest and the well-being of others before yours and man, that is deeply attractive to God. When you make your life about not only you advancing your cause, but trying to help others win, whoo, boy, that draws God's heart in. God remembers the humble. In fact, that takes us to point number four. And it says that God not only remembers and rewards your faithfulness, but he, he remembers even those who opposed you many times who might very well be prideful. So while Mordecai has this lesson of humility locked down, Haman is so wrapped up in his own prideful glory that he actually fails to see the kingdom that he's built slowly starting to crumble all around him. And so in his hastiness and his pride, he is just unknowingly stepped into a divine trap because right after suggesting to the king this ridiculously elaborate parade for the man that the king delights in convinced that the king is thinking of him the king drops a bombshell on him so i'm gonna read it to you feel free to smile as i read esther chapter 6 starting in verse 10 here's how king xerxes responds to haman he says all right haman go at once the king commanded him get the robe and the horse and do just as you have suggested for Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate and do not neglect anything you have recommended. I I can't even stop smiling, right? I mean, this is just, this is sweet revenge and I know I should be humble, but it's hard, right? Like I wish, man, I wish I had a, I wish I had a DeLorean to go back to look on Haman's face. And think about how humbling those next few hours would have been for Haman. Like Haman not only had to um, be Mordecai's personal, escort through the city while 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 Mordecai is riding high but but Haman also actually had to dress him up personally. I mean, could you imagine the conversation that must have been taking place? And so I think it's a good place as any to reiterate that the scripture says God opposes the proud. Listen, God actually fights against the proud where he lifts up the humble. He remembers not only the faithful, but he also remembers those who opposed you. So keep that in mind. But I don't want to dwell too much on this on, on, on uh Haman because this blog post, at least this week's post, is not about one man's failure. Rather it's about God. It's about how God remembers his own people. Now, consider how great an honor this reward must have been for Mordecai. Like like being offered the king's robe and the king's horse is tantamount um, to being offered the present day president's personal secret service to escort you around town in his personal limousine motorcade and and you riding in what's known as the beast, right? That's the president's personal car. I mean, that kind of favor sends a message to everyone who gets a glimpse of you that you and the king are tight and, and that you are not to be touched, in fact, that's actually what Xerxes was intending to do by rewarding Mordecai. Xerxes wanted as many citizens of the city of Susa as possible to see Mordecai in his position so that they also might aspire to similarly distinguish themselves in service to him. Now, what I find even more interesting about this whole experience is not just Mordecai, certainly God's hand in rewarding Mordecai, but but I think it's Mordecai's actions right after the parade because it tells us a lot about the kind of... Um, um, humble man that Mordecai was. Esther chapter six, uh, verse two says, after Mordecai returned, afterwards, after the parade, Mordecai returned to the king's gate. I mean, think about that. Because what, it, what it's saying there is that right after this huge celebration where he is elevated above everyone else, it basically says Mordecai went right back to work. Like, like this dude didn't try to leverage his five minutes of fame into a book deal, into a TV special, or even into higher pay or position. But man, he simply, he simply went back to doing what he was faithfully doing before God honored him in the presence of the whole city. In fact, this becomes even more telling when you compare what he did to what Haman did in the chap- in the previous chapter right after he was honored by being invited to the most exclusive party in the royal palace by Esther. If you're recalling that account, Esther chapter 5 verse 9 to 12, Haman comes back from this huge party and he basically goes home and throws his own party where he celebrates how wealthy and influential he was. So clearly this guy is just full of himself. And so when we get to chapter 6, man, we, we see that roles have been reversed, right? And God is holding true to his word about what happens when you and I humble ourselves in his presence, or what will happen if we continue to walk in pride. You see, Mordecai, afterwards, whereas Mordecai uh, goes home um, and, and, and goes right back to work. Haman uh, not only runs home covered in shame, literally, but when he gets home, he meets at the end of chapter 6. He goes home to even more awful news. Like his, his advisors and his wife, after hearing all that he went through at work, conclude to him that his luck in life has run out because the Jews are clearly a special people governed by a supernatural God, right? And you, you know what I was thinking when I was reading... Um, Haman's wife's and counsel, uh, wife and friends' counsels in verse 13? You know what I was thinking? I was thinking, why, why the heck did you not all tell him this yesterday when you were counseling him to build a 75-foot sharpened pole to impale Mordecai on? Right? And I think, man, there's a lesson in those last few verses of chapter 6 about asking God to help you marry the right wife or husband and pick the right friends. But you know what? I'm not going to go there now because we need to wrap this up. Suffice it to say, while Haman is still reeling from the calamity that is clearly about to befall him, news comes in from the palace that his presence was immediately requested at the second party that Esther was hosting, which will take place in the next chapter, a party in which, by the way, Haman's plot will finally be exposed. Now, as we wrap up this chapter, I think it'll serve us well to remember that Uh, The -the behind-the-scenes sovereign hand of God in this story, listen to this, is in response to the whole city of Jews praying and fasting for three days. I I mean, it's a response to prayer. Listen, though God's will will be done, regardless of human opposition, regardless of demonic schemes, um, God has ordained the heaven-moving program of prayer and fasting to guide his hands in the affairs of humanity. So God will do what he wants to do, but in his great love for those who, whom he's called to himself through Christ, he's chosen to move as we pray. So while God's, while God remembering us centers around his putting into action what he's already intended to do in the timing when it'll do us the greatest good and bring him the greatest glory, man, you'll, you'll find time and time again that you and I still need to engage regularly in the act of calling on him by faith in Prayer. So that's what I want to challenge you with this week. And as you go about your week, man, I pray that you would be a man or a woman of prayer, remembering that, that that God remembering you is not so much so much God forgetting and remembering, but it's about God stepping in to do what He's always planned to do. However, many times God does that in response to our prayer. So so I just pray today. If if you'd let me pray for you as we wrap this up, Father, I ask in Jesus' name that for every person listening right now that you would really just stir their hearts up with great encouragement, remind them that you have not forgotten and that you're moving according to your perfect timing, your perfect schedule, and you will move in our lives when it'll do us the greatest good and bring you the greatest glory. I pray that you would make us a people of prayer. I pray that this week you would stir up in us a greater affection for you, a desire to call out to you a boldness to call out to you. And as a result of crying out to you, we would see, um, we would see your mighty hand in our lives. And so Lord, we ask all these things in Jesus name. So, Hey, thanks so much for listening. I invite you to not only download the accompanying devotional guide that's at the bottom of this page, but also please feel free to share this online with your friends and family. God bless you. Have a phenomenal week.